Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott and I'm the host. Today we have a very special episode and it is called Navigating a Faith Crisis While at Church Headquarters. So today we've got a very special episode. I've got an awesome guest and I'll let him introduce himself in just a moment. And it is a rare treat to have someone that is this intimately familiar with how the church operates. So I am very eager to have this discussion and I'm excited to share it to you guys, the listeners. I will introduce this guest. We'll talk about his past a little bit and we'll talk about why we brought him on and what's so fascinating about what our guest has to say. So welcome to Ramiumptum Ruminations, Brian Harris. Thanks. It's good to talk with you today. I'm excited for this conversation. I think we're going to have some really interesting things that we'll be able to discuss. So our guest today, Brian, he worked in the church headquarters. He has a fascinating story to tell. Brian, tell us a little bit about what you did for church headquarters, and then we'll rewind and we'll talk a little bit about your life leading up to that. Yeah, so I spent about six and a half years in the Correlation Research Division. Uh, when I first started, it was known as the Research Information Division, and that's a part of the Correlation Department, but uh, specifically focused on all things research. When people typically hear the word correlation, they're going to think the correlated materials, the handbooks, the the lesson manuals and such. What was in like the scope of this correlation department that you worked in? Was it was it that or was it more than that? Yeah, so so there definitely is a, a sizable group in correlation that takes care of making sure that the uh, church manuals and things all align with what is officially recognized as church doctrine. But it's a kind of a varied group. So there are people also that work on data privacy and uh, intellectual property, kind of legal things. And then there was our research group. And we handled everything from membership trends and, and just keeping track of membership data. And what are the trends in you know, like birth rates or how many people are getting ordained to the priesthood at the appropriate age, as well as looking into current issues and helping to... Uh, develop and iterate on different kind of products that were being produced, everything from website to apps and in-person programs like the new youth stuff that came out in the last couple of years. Within the correlation department, there's a team that you were part of that was focused primarily on information and how to use that to implement better tools for the church. Am I understanding that properly? Yep. And some of it was very product focused. Um, I think a lot of people underestimate just how many products the church manages and owns and keeps up to date. Uh, and then there was also a very strategic side uh, where we were looking at bigger issues and uh, generational trends and, and just trying to see what are the problems that the church might encounter in the next few years. When you say products, that's not going to be a, a term that many of the listeners are going to be familiar with as it relates to the church. What specifically do you mean by that? So a lot of the products are uh, what you might recognize in uh, just web design industry. There's a lot of digital products. So every 
every page, every department uh, that has their own content, like the priesthood and family department managed all the pages like mormonandgay.org or overcoming pornography. And each of those pages and all of their sub pages had to be managed by somebody who tried. I think they did try their best to listen to the needs of the members and figure out who's coming to the site, why are they coming here, what can we do to better meet those needs. But there's a lot of research that goes on into really understanding those groups. The products that you're referring to that you were you were gathering this information for, the products are like the LDS Tools app, the Mormon and Gay website, anything that the church is putting out, that's what you're referring to as products. Exactly. So, so all of the seminary curricula, all of the missionary area book planner, and all of the videos that are produced for missionary training, all of that kind of stuff okay. fits into that. Your particular part in correlation, you were gathering surveys and information to help influence and guide these, these products? Or how did the interplay of what you were doing with surveys correlate with these products that you're talking about? We would do surveys. We had uh, website intercept surveys for people that came to LDS.org. That's what it was at the time. Uh, They've since changed all of the domains to align with the true name of the church and all of that. We don't want any victories for Satan. That's right. Not on our watch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of surveys through the website, but we also had access to all of the membership records. And so we would pull samples of different types of members just filtering based on the data that we had available and trying to kind of reach a a good sample, trying to make it representative, scientifically valid. Everyone in our research group had some kind of uh, postgraduate degree. Okay. Uh, Typically in the social sciences, we were all experienced researchers. And so there really was a lot of scientific rigor that went into that process. But we also did spend quite a bit of time traveling and doing focus groups and in-depth interviews and ethnographies and all kinds of other research methods. Before I get into some of those surveys and the questions and, and all of that, still kind of focusing on like higher level of this organization, how many people worked worked in the correlation department and then in your specific branch of the correlation department? Within the correlation department, we were the biggest group, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily the most well liked. <laughs> <laughs> now, why not? I don't know. There, there's something about just a group of very smart, very talented researchers seeing the world in a very different way than the rest of the organization. So, so we were kind of black sheep, but we were also a necessary part of every process. Nobody could get a product approved without getting our stamp of approval. So interesting. We had to play nice, but it it made for some very interesting and deep conversations with people that came from a variety of backgrounds. And and I think we did have a positive impact throughout the organization, just sharing uh, our perspective and our insights. Your group was how many people within the correlation? When I first started, I think there were about 25 full-time employees. Um, And by the time I left, I think there were closer to 40. So we had grown pretty considerably. And that's a very large research group. I've never seen a group that size anywhere outside of academia. Now we can go on back to kind of where you were leading just a second ago. You, You said you traveled for a lot of these surveys and you implemented both from capturing people that were on the websites. You're gathering these surveys. How are you guys determining what areas to focus on for these surveys, and then what demographics to focus on. Is it these problems that they're presenting to you, and then you're kind of focusing based on on the projects that they're trying to emphasize? 
Yeah, so we didn't initiate very much work at all on our own. Uh, just the way that it was structured, we were a service organization that other departments would come to out of necessity or out of a lack of information that they needed to be able to make some kind of decision. Because of just bandwidth issues, we weren't always able to address the small kinds of questions that might come from the staff. But if there was ever a pressing concern that a member of the 70 from some particular committee came to us and said, I really need to know this so that I can give direction to the entire department. Then that's the kind of stuff where we would dive in and say, okay, who are the right people to give us perspective? You know, maybe we need to interview mission presidents and we can do that. Or maybe we need to talk to parents of young children, or maybe we need to talk to single parents or whatever the right group is. Bishops might have some unique perspective on an issue that you can't get from others. Um, and so that really went into a lot of that planning is just identifying who's going to help us to really see through all of the clutter and the noise and the just the massive amount of data that we could potentially get what's going to be the clearest picture of what to do next. You do all these surveys. Who are you reporting directly to? And not just like you as your boss within correlation, but who is correlation, this, cor this branch within correlation department? Who are you guys working for? And who are you presenting this information to? That was usually at the managing director level or above. Uh, so we were working really with the top leadership of each department or above that level. So a lot of times the general auxiliary presidencies, a lot of times with members of the Quorum of the Twelve that were serving on a particular committee or council. You do this survey and then you're presenting it to these auxiliaries. How often were you presenting this information to the Quorum of the Twelve or to some uh, the presidency of the Seventy? Was this something that you guys were doing regularly? Yeah. So me personally, or like the teams that I was working on, it might be every couple of months, but somebody in the department pretty much once a week at least was presenting to one of those kinds of groups. And so we had a lot of interface and FaceTime with some of the leadership. How did those interactions typically go? So you come in, you present the information, you talk about whatever your survey results are, you just kind of like quietly leave the room and let them discuss? How does this sort of an interaction play out? That really depends on who is sitting at the head of the table in the meeting. So some of the times we'd be sitting out in the foyer waiting for our turn to even enter the room because there's some other group presenting their stuff and discussing whatever they needed to. And, and you know, sometimes the secretary would come out and say, actually, you're off the agenda for today. Sorry. <laughs> you know, come back next time in two weeks. <laughs> you know, and typically we'd go in and present our piece and there might be five or 10 minutes of discussion and questions and answers. And, and then they dismiss us from the room just explicitly like, thank you, you can go. Occasionally, they would want us in the room and say like, okay, well, I think your perspective here is actually going to help us with the next thing on the agenda. So go ahead and stick around. Regular staff level was mostly there to present and listen. And then all the question and answer was handled by our boss or our boss's boss or whoever was seen as that kind of authority. It's a very hierarchical kind of organization to be in. Within the church HQ, so the top is obviously the Quorum of the Twelve and then the Seventy. At what point in the chain does it transition to your boss or to you presenting to them? No longer called into the church, but more hired to do the job. Yeah, that's a good question. So there are different councils and committees 
And those are always headed by a called general authority. Okay. Anything lower than that level is typically handled by a managing director. And that would be the, the head of an entire department. So the, the head of all things church history or the head of all things correlation. And those are not general authorities. Those are. Yep. Yep. So those are hired positions, but it, there's definitely kind of a sense that they are still your superior kind of, it's, it's hard to know which line you're going up at some point. It all ends up at the same first presidency. The thing I'm trying to highlight here is that there's kind of this blending of, of both job, but then also like religious hierarchy kind of lining up in, in a, an interesting way that you don't get with most positions. Yeah. And, and those managing director positions are usually former CEOs of some company or a prominent stake president in the area that they manage to you know, hold on to. They are very well paid and deservedly so. They have a lot of responsibility. They work crazy hours taking on-call kind of requests every day of the week, all night, <laughs> just depending on who they're working with. And there could be a lot going on even globally where they have to field stuff from the West Africa area office or things like that. So not a job I would personally want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what does the hiring process look like to get into HQ and how do they, how do they even select candidates? I, I can't imagine it's an easy process. A lot of it kind of works like any other job interview, but it is that kind of more traditional hierarchical structure. And so, so there are different layers to the interview and it can take a while. You hand in your temple recommend as you walk in. Yeah. And, and, and the temple recommend question actually didn't come up until they were ready to make an offer. So I had made it through a, you know, a phone interview and then a full day on site kind of interview where I had to present stuff and prove that I knew how to do stats and all of that kind of stuff. And then as they were making the offer, it was just kind of, by the way, we have to ask this, do you have a current temple recommend? And that is that final hurdle. Were there any employed uh, people at this at, at the location that were not members of the church? None. Yeah. So I, I think there were maybe a handful of people, and I don't know any cases of this personally. Theoretically, it's possible to not have a valid temple recommend as long as your bishop is willing to sign something saying that you are worthy and kind of giving his uh, stamp on that. So I never saw that, but that was technically an option. We're going to jump back to something we were, we almost transitioned into another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is these actual, the implementation of these surveys. So let's kind of, let's move in that direction. Two things that I kind of want to talk about is how, how are you coming up with the questions and the demographics? And then what did the implementation of these surveys look like? Yeah. So for a lot of our surveys, uh, we would use a panel that had been specifically recruited uh, so this is a panel that we would refresh about every 12 or 18 months. Uh, and, and these are people that would volunteer to take multiple surveys. Uh, and so we'd say, we're going to be coming back to you, you know, maybe five or six times over the next year or so. Are you willing to answer some questions and stay on the panel and try and be responsive when we send out the, the email? Most of those, our sampling was, uh, they had to attend church at least three out of four weeks in a month. For that recurring panel, I think we also required a temple recommend. Okay. It was a little bit tricky. Some of the questions that we asked could be very sensitive for the church. If this information gets out, 
into the public, there could be backlash or there could be, you know, rumblings on the ex-Mormon Reddit pages or wherever. (laughs) (laughs) And so we didn't want to, you know, release this too widely. But as a result, we did end up with a very, very active sample, a little bit abnormally active. And so we always had to kind of weigh that in our minds and say, we recognize that's a limitation and not everyone in the church is going to feel this way. How are you finding these people then that are going to be part of these samples? And even if it's like a rotating or revolving door of people that are within these samples, how are you finding them? Because I mean, even within every ward, there's going to be a range of beliefs and a range of activity levels. And how are you vetting them? With the church membership records, we had access to, I don't know, probably eight or 10 million email addresses. And you could just spam that list, but you don't need to send a message to all 8 million names that you have. So typically, it was a very, very small percentage of church membership. Okay. But we'd end up with a panel of somewhere between one to 2,000 members. And typically, we'd see that broken out kind of geographically across the U.S. And these were largely U.S. only. I think the main consideration is you want to make sure that your confidence interval on the statistical results at the end is something that you're comfortable with. So. If we get a result that's true within about a percent and a half, that's great. You know, that's very comfortable to work with. And sampling more than that doesn't give you very much bang for your buck. And it it kind of burns out more people that you could use potentially in the future. What you're saying, and, and just to make sure that I'm understanding it, doing a dramatically larger sample size is going to give you the exact same results. And so it's not necessary to to compile a much larger sample group. Right. So, so typically we'd get a couple hundred people in Utah, a couple hundred people from the rest of the Western US and a couple hundred people from everywhere else east of like Colorado. And, and you'd see those pockets, you know, where membership is really strong, Utah, Idaho, Arizona, you definitely see that density and it, it matches with what we would expect. In this department, you're doing these surveys, you have access to accurate, updated membership records and numbers. Yep. And, and there was a very limited number of people in the department that actually had that access. So we would have to go to them and say, I'm doing a survey. Here's the kind of sample I'm looking for. And, and so there would be maybe two people in the whole research group that would have that access and be able to pull the data. So they, they tried to be careful and protect that personal information. You guys in this department, you had access to accurate like statistic numbers about the membership and their activity, even going in before you're grabbing these samples, these sam- these yeah, these membership samples. Yeah. So those were typically where we would get the data, where we would filter to try and target the right kinds of units. And, and so for like the, the youth curriculum study that we did, we particularly targeted areas with very few youth per capita and areas with a ton of youth per capita. So we end up in Lehigh and Highland in Utah or Layton, Kaysville. And so we could definitely go in and say like, what is the percentage of Uh, priesthood holders relative to the total congregation numbers or things like that. Now we've got our sample size. We understand kind of who you're working for and who you're presenting to. How are you guys coming up with these questions and how are you implementing them? You said that you did have some travel. I can't imagine that you were doing these interview questions in person, at least not with 2000 people. What were some of these implementation methods that you guys were doing for these surveys? Yeah, so I, th- I think it really comes back to like who are the right people to get to, and then what's the right way to get their feedback. So some questions you really just need to know how much, how many, how often, uh, and those turn into pretty quick surveys. So for this kind of, we had a semi-annual bishop survey that would go out right after general conference every six months, 
and, and those were typically like, how many youth are you currently working with? How many of those are uh, on planning on a mission or not? And just very basic kind of counts. We also did a project, though, uh, just related to welfare issues. We needed to really understand what are the issues that different people across the world are dealing with, like actual practical issues that their family or they personally need help solving. And maybe it's hunger, maybe it's domestic violence, maybe it's, you know, all kinds of things. And so for those, we had to be very careful. Uh, that was not a 2000 person sample for a survey that was, we're going to go to your ward and find these people and talk to them in a very private kind of setting and just really try to get them to tell their life story and what are their biggest issues? What are they worried about for their kids and their future and all of that? That sort of a survey and that sort of information that would come more from like maybe a 70 that's concerned about their area, doesn't know what to talk about at an upcoming meeting. Is that, am I, am I reading right? What like the, the motive for that sort of a, a survey would be, or why have a more in-depth questionnaire for individual members like that? Yeah. So that one was basically to help guide content strategy for the website. Um, so they have this page with resources. And I think if you go to like the gospel topics pages, you know, some of those include things like, what do I do if my spouse is looking at pornography or things like that. And, and so to get that kind of detail from the spouse's perspective, you know, we had to actually identify people. And, and for that, we kind of went through bishops and we said, look, we know this is a sensitive thing. Can you invite somebody from your ward that you think fits this profile? And then we'll set up a one-on-one -on -one interview with them, kind of with your coordination so that they know it's a legitimate source and it's confidential. And, and so then you would go out and meet this person in person, wherever they're at. And so with that kind of information, then we know, okay, we, we have this page, 80% of it is focusing on the wrong things. And maybe we need more of this and a little more of that, and maybe take out a bit of this. And that gives us a, a better narrative, a better message that that matches more closely what people are actually struggling with. Thinking about how the church operates, you, you don't think about the surveys, you don't think about the research that they're doing in order to implement these things. But it's, I mean, once you crack open the hood, this is exactly what you would expect them to be doing before they implement anything on the website. This was a question that popped into my head, and I kind of alluded to it a little bit a minute ago, but do they have you run surveys like this or try and gather information while they're preparing general conference talks to know what to address specifically in general conference? Or is that something that you have no experience with? Yeah. So we did see that occasionally. It almost never resulted in a new study. What it would result in is we had a full-time librarian that could dig into the archives and say, what do we know about this? Um, and so she would work with you know some of our senior leadership in the research division to say, can we give him like one quotable statistic that is reliable, even if people try and take it out of context or whatever we know they're going to do with it. What question didn't I ask? What avenue didn't we explore that I should have, but I didn't know to ask about? Yeah, I think one thing that was really, really interesting when I was managing those kind of semi-annual surveys out to the members, the feedback that we would get was really interesting because people would write back in and say like, you know, two, two different versions of why does the church need research? And, and one was kind of a, maybe a more liberal or ex Mormon or, you know, kind of, I don't know what the right word is, but people would say, see, he's not a real prophet. If, if you're just doing research to make these decisions, 
then it proves the church isn't true. But then you'd have the other side saying, the church doesn't need you. You're a wolf in sheep's clothing. You are mingling the philosophies of men with scripture and uh, kind of both sides of that. These are comments that are being left at the end of surveys when it would say something along the lines of, is there anything else you'd want to say? Yeah, that or just replying to the email and saying, I will not take your survey. I'm morally opposed to what you're doing for whatever reason. Fascinating. So you would get it from both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. So it's church policy, and it's actually written in the handbook of instructions that anytime the church does research, they're going to provide a name and a phone number for contact. And so the times that my name and phone number made it into these kind of public spaces and the private Facebook groups, oh no, I would get bombarded with calls and emails and people just saying, hey, I heard about this survey. I have an opinion and you're going to hear it. <laughs> Those could be really interesting. So how would they reach out to you? Would they look you up on Facebook or Instagram and then like reach out to you there? Or would they just like email you or call this work number? I'm assuming that they would put on there. Yeah. So typically somebody would screenshot a page of the survey where it says, if you have any questions, contact Brian at ldschurch.org. <laughs> so, so my uh, work inbox and my work phone would typically be the, the sources that would blow up there. What was the craziest message that you got from that sort of uh, an interaction? Uh, So right after we fielded a survey asking members' opinions, and have you heard of John DeLynn and Kate Kelly, uh, asking by name, do you know who these people are and have you paid attention to their excommunication media exposure? Uh, That one really got shared. It actually got shared in the Mormon Feminist Housewives Facebook group that I was a part of. And so I was seeing all of those messages like, hey, guys, we need to rally the troops and contact this Brian guy. (laughs) You're watching it happen real time. And just trying to say like, hey, I'm I'm here. I (laughs) (laughs) you just comment on this thread. It's all good. I should have asked this earlier, but what were the dates of your employment? You said about six and a half years working at the headquarters. When did you start and when when did that uh, tenure end? Yeah, it started right at the beginning of 2013 and then through the summer of 2019. I want to transition here, and I think there might be a burning question in some of our listeners. How does this guy working at HQ end up on a post-Mormon or a nuanced Mormons podcast? What are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) That's a question that starts way before I even started working for the church, honestly. Yeah, so we can explore your story with as much or as little detail as you'd like, because I think this is uh, just as fascinating as as all of the things that you worked on. You know, how does how does someone that is has this much intimate information about headquarters start talking openly about it? I guess one thing to understand is my academic background. I studied sociology, uh, which is pretty well known for having a liberal bent. And that was at BYU. And so, you know, again, kind of finding myself in that black sheep category. <laughs> Going into the these studies of um, sociology, were you already liberal leaning or left leaning? Definitely uh, left leaning. Uh, I think it was my mission that really changed my political views. Uh, serving a Spanish-speaking mission in the United States in a red state and just seeing the way that, you know, I'm trying to treat these people with love and kindness and charity and all the things that Christ taught and then seeing the way that they were received at church or uh, the way that other missionaries in my mission 
explicitly refused to teach people with certain skin tones. And just seeing that disconnect made me realize, you know, my religion, uh, sharing the same religion with someone does not necessarily mean that I share the same values. Uh, and so kind of finding myself very much to the left of most other members that I knew. So you went into this program already diverging a little bit, at least from the mainstream. Mainstream Mormonism is at least, you know, when you and I grew up in the in the 90s, was very Republican. Yeah, right coming right off the back of President Benson and a lot of his rhetoric um, against the Democratic Party. So we we grew up in a version of the church that was very red. So you're already going into this this so uh, the sociology program a little bit nuanced. Yeah, and I, when I told my mom where I was applying to graduate schools and saying I want to go into sociology and I'm going to study at this big university, she's like, "No, don't go there. They'll turn you into a socialist." And I'm thinking, "Mom, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> it was BYU. It was my mission." I had a really similar experience with my mission. It just kind of opened my eyes to how much we can do for other human beings. So you go into the sociology department, you say you're, you're, you're a little nuanced, you get your master's degree. Did you get any more education beyond master's or did you go from there into the workforce? I started a PhD program at UC Irvine and actually ended up leaving the program just because of some mental health issues and trying to simplify my life, ground myself and and a part of that was, uh, that's, that's really where my faith crisis really started to set in. And so part of that was like, I need to find my center again. Maybe that's, you know, going back to Utah, whatever this job sort of fell in my lap. My friend said, Hey, I've been working here. You should apply. And I did. And it worked. And like, it, it never happens that easily. It was the only job I applied to. And I thought it's, of course it's meant to be or moment, you were already going through some the telltale signs of a faith, faith crisis, even before you took this position. Yep. What sorts of things had you lost your faith in or had you become nuanced in going into this? For me, I just felt like there was such a lack of openness. Like it just wasn't a safe place to be whoever you are. And so just sitting in the Sunday school class and hearing the same comments reinforcing each other and they're totally out of line with what I feel. Um, and, and that kind of experience was always just really hard for me. And so I found myself like volunteering to go sit in primary and help out rather than sit through the lessons and trying to find some way where I could still do some good or help somebody where I didn't have to suffer at the same time. It wasn't as much of a belief. Yeah, it wasn't about belief. It wasn't about the history or even really a lot of the social issues. I'd kind of found a place where, you know, I think one way the church thinks another way and I'm going to be okay with that. Your faith was intact. You just kind of felt uncomfortable or marginalized because of your political leanings. Or was it more than that? And I think I did feel out of place, but there were also times, even as a little kid, I remember like if I'd stay up too late and I'm, you know, my head's groggy and I fall asleep on the couch and then I'm walking up to my bed at 2 a.m. You know, I'd be thinking just these random thoughts would come into my head, like maybe none of this is real. You know, maybe God isn't real. Like what if this is all there is? And those same kinds of thoughts make a lot of sense when you start looking at the church from a sociological perspective. 
and realizing like there's so much here that is man-made. It's obviously the product of American institutions throughout the 1900s or, you know, whatever. And just realizing like, maybe, maybe there is no God. And so for me, it was never about is Joseph Smith a prophet? It's like, let's go one step farther. You know, if God isn't real, then none of it matters. (laughs) (laughs) There was a little bit of that, but I think at that point it was mostly just, do I feel like I fit in here? Do I feel like I belong? Do I feel like I can be honest in the way I present myself? You kind of white knuckle it. You just push through. Eventually it gets better. At least that's what they tell you. Bear your testimony till you have one, all of that kind of stuff. Okay. So you take this position. You're now working for church headquarters. You're now working. You do have some of these questions, maybe a little bit of nuanced belief, nuanced activity in the church. We're missing that jump. How do you go from there to where you are today? So I think my my first like really real faith crisis moment happened about, I don't know, eight months, nine months after I started working for the church. You know, it had kind of been simmering on the back burner a little bit and then just really starting to think like, what have I done? Like, is this really going to work out? You know, I'm going to have to keep the temple recommend question, which means I have to answer all of the do you believe questions with a yes. And I wanted to, like, I wanted to say yes and I wanted to mean it. Kind of realizing like some people would just lie, get the recommend, keep the job, everything's fine. But that's really like, I grew up LDS and I believe in integrity and that's a core kind of value. So if I'm going to say, yes, I really want to earn it. Like I want to know. And it just wasn't coming to me, you know, that clarity that I was hoping for. And so I had been, I guess there's a a content warning here, but all of that kind of dissonance and conflict inside of myself got me thinking like, you know, maybe this is never going to work out. And you know, I'm, I'm depressed over this. I'm anxious about it. It's like this crushing weight and thinking maybe, you know, suicide is a way out, you know, and, and with any luck, it's just going to be a void and there's nothing there. And then it's over because if I'm wrong, that's worse. (laughs) No, I can painfully relate to that sort of uh, mindset. You had mentioned briefly earlier on, you're going through some depression and, and that was kind of part of your life. Did that get worse as you were working for the church? I would imagine if it's like a scrupulosity, because you haven't really talked about too much about why you were feeling some of these emotions. Did it get better or worse? Or was it about the same working for headquarters? Off and on. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think I've achieved a solid state of happiness yet. Hey, tell me about it. You know, it's a personality trait at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> I watch, I watch a fair amount of shows and movies and stuff. And there was a show I was watching recently and it was making a joke along these same lines. And it was rephrasing the sound of silence by Simon and Garfunkel. It was talking about mental health and it was like, hello, depression, my old friend, come to sit with you again. And, and for me, like that just has stuck with me. It's like, no matter how long I go, it's always going to come back. But my relationship with it is changing. Yeah. And, and the intensity does change. Yeah. And, and you get more comfortable with saying, okay, I know what this is. I've been here. Yeah. So right after that kind of experience, the, the next general conference is when Elder Holland gave his talk about depression and just saying like, don't give up, hang in there. Like, 
and that really kind of struck me. And I thought like, maybe God is listening, you know, the, the timing of this worked out just right. And, and so I kind of doubled down on like, I'm going to make this work. And so I even started writing a blog and I was trying to convince myself like, you know, this dissonance is okay. I can handle this and it's going to work out. And, you know, seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, like I'm going to be faithful. I haven't gone back to read that blog since then. I'm afraid to look at it because I, I don't know what kind of person I was <laughs> and I'm afraid to look. A snapshot of a different version of you. Yeah. And my, my wife read it recently and uh, was just kind of amazed like, wow, you were so, you were brainwashing yourself. <laughs> and I'm like, now I really don't want to look. So that's kind of my faith crisis came first. And I think it startled my wife because she was very, very much still believing and active and trying to do everything exactly right. And uh, kind of around the same time that I was dealing with that, um, I had other siblings leaving the church and cousins and, you know, other people from both of our families that were saying, you know what, I'm out and, and I'm okay with that. And, and so us trying to understand, like, where are you coming from? And, and we're, we're researchers and we ask questions and we want to empathize and we want to understand it. And so I think that started just, you know, some of the wheels turning. Well, that comes with the sociology background. You know, you're interested in other people's lives, where they're coming from, their experiences. And even if it's different than yours, it's still valid. And, and that's kind of the background that you're coming to this space with. Yeah. And starting to see like a faith crisis isn't a moral failing. It's a social structure and a context that has led to this. And so that I think got the wheels turning for both of us. My wife ended up uh, stopping attending before I did. And I was still trying to make it work. So that was around 2016 or 17, maybe. So she stopped attending before I did. And I was still working for the church and really trying to make it work and taking the kids every week. And so this is three years, you've been working for the church for three years at this point, and your wife stops attending. And and I was okay with it. You know, I could see like, she's happier now and she's uh, figuring out what she wants in life rather than just taking it on face value that what the church says is right. And, and, and I approve of that and I appreciate it and I support it. And uh, that got me into a little bit of trouble with my ward because I apparently was not doing enough to make her come back. I wasn't using my agency to take away her agency. You know? Oh, man. <laughs> so your ward knew that she wasn't attending. Did your colleagues and your boss in headquarters know that she wasn't attending? Yeah, um, I was pretty open about it. I, I have some very close friends that still work there. Uh, and we would talk a lot just about, you know, here's, here's what it's been like so far. And here's where we're at. And I, I didn't get any grief from anybody at work, um, no matter who I talked to, you know, even like in casual conversations, you know, when I got more comfortable with it, um, you know, I'd bring it up when I was chatting casually with general auxiliary presidency members and just say like, oh, yeah, my wife actually is not a member anymore. And I, I never got any kind of grief for it at work. And I felt like that was a very healthy, supportive environment where I could do my best work. Uh, try and help the church, maybe even help other families like mine that maybe needed that kind of support. Would never, never have guessed that that would have been their reaction. And I think that's really cool. There are some really good people at church headquarters, like on an individual level. I really respect a lot of them. 
a lot of those that leave the church, we get this like Orwellian view of headquarters and how it all operates. And, and I'm just getting this, that, you know, they get this image of 1984 where, you know, the guy working there, he gets past this headline and this news article from the past and he's got to go and change the facts and make it line up with what, you know, what their government in the book, 1984, what they're trying to promote or, you know, they've made this person disappear. They're writing him out of history. Those that leave the church, they get this, this almost nihilistic view of, of how it all operates, that everything is nefarious. Everybody's trying to hide and obfuscate and just, you know, do everything they can to make the church look good. But the way you're presenting this is these are real people that care about each other, that are working, they're doing a job. It doesn't sound like these people have any sort of nefarious intent. They are genuine believers trying their hardest to do what the church has asked them to do. Some are zealots, most are not. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think you get that with any organization where there, there are toxic personalities occasionally that, you know, that's just part of the landscape. But I, yeah, at least in terms of like the staff and the director level, uh, and even some of kind of the lower tier general authorities, they were all just very kind, very good, warm-hearted, decent people. And and I didn't get a lot of FaceTime with Quorum of the Twelve. To me and my perspective, they seemed less warm. Uh, they, they weren't going to spend time chatting with you. Uh, and, you know, partly because they're busy, but I, I think they just uh, don't feel a need to understand as much as some of the others that you work with day to day. Would they take the time to learn people's names that work there? Depending on their title and status, uh, yes, but most staff no. You go there and present, and they might recognize your face, but they're not gonna—they're not gonna take the time to get to know all of the. They'll—they'll they'll know me as my boss's employee, and and you expect that at some level from any CEO or any kind of chief marketing or any level. Is it kind of feels opposite of what you would expect? Yeah, it, it definitely contrasted with some of the things that you might see in like church news or in the little video they put together between conference sessions where they're out among the people and they're waving and they're charismatic. And in the office, you know, they're not going to talk to you on the elevator. Did they have their own elevators or were you? They, they have their own building. Yeah. That sometimes we could visit and they very rarely came to ours. But, it, you know, if you if you did happen to be like walking through the parking lot underground through those tunnels, <laughs> then, you know, the, you, you might get a head nod. So when you're presenting to them, you're going to their building. Yeah, almost always. You are working more intimately with them than 99% of the members ever get to do. We all growing up in the church, we get this idea of what the prophet and the apostles are, who they are as people, you know, friendly, caring, charismatic, like we just said. Did you ever have an experience where you go in and you learned that it wasn't like that or it was different than that? Did anything change with your perspective of them as prophets and general authorities change when you were working more intimately with them for positive or negative? I'm not trying to lead you to be disparaging. I'm, I, I'm just curious if there was any sort of changes that happened there. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's one story. I was with a friend and we were presenting to the missionary executive committee. Uh, and so we're waiting outside and, uh, President Nelson, at the time Elder Nelson, uh, walks in. I can't remember who was with him, maybe Elder Bednar. Um, And they stop at the counter, like where the receptionist is working. And 
they're they're kind of fishing through this little bowl of candy on the counter and, and <laughs> president nelson says i only eat the green ones because they're healthier <laughs> you know you got to eat your vitamin <laughs> m it was just kind of like a nice little human moment where like i think it was coming from like he just was in a fun mood and you kind of get to see a little bit of that most of the time just by watching conference, you can tell these are the issues they care most about, or this is the way that they would handle a a situation with someone. And most of the time that lined up pretty well with what you'd see off the record. I I think probably the, the biggest thing that I saw was when we would run into president Monson on the campus at church headquarters. Uh, He didn't look well. He had dementia pretty clearly, uh, and and his daughter would push him around in a wheelchair and we'd see this like he's not all there. You know, he doesn't know where he is or like it, it just made you feel really kind of sad for him. Did everyone at headquarters know that he had dementia or was this a rumor that was going around? Was this information out in the open, at least within those that worked closely with him? It was mostly rumor. It was people saying, you know, I was in this meeting and he said the same thing three times or you know, things like that. But it was, there was never an official memo that says like, okay, for the time being, these guys are calling the shots instead of him. There was never any kind of formal communication or acknowledgement of that. Since there was no formal, I mean, I guess, I guess a listener could say, yeah, you know, we don't know for certain, but I would like to contrast some of the things that you observed with what normal behavior might look like. Was it normal to run into them being pushed around in wheelchairs by their family members? Uh, he's the only one I ever saw in that situation. Most of the time they'd be like riding on a golf cart, but they'd be like talking about something. They were having a business meeting in the back of the golf cart from one place to the next. And with president Monson, he was almost always like just sitting someone pushing him and then maybe a group of security behind, but he wasn't involved in those same kind of conversations. Are you running into him more or less often than the other general authorities? Or would that be something that you wouldn't be able to? Uh, it, it was all pretty infrequent. With with all of them? Yeah, with all of them. Uh, except for like the presiding bishopric when we shared a floor in the office building with them for a while. You know, we'd, we'd see them all the time, but everyone else. So it wasn't common for them to be pushed around in wheelchairs. Not common for their their children to be walking them around. Yeah, and she had a church office type of position at the time. I can't remember. Oh, she did. Okay. I, I think she was in some kind of presidency or committee. Okay. So it was normal to see her around, but kind of in that caregiving facility. At this time, President Packer was also coming close to to when he passed away and L. Tom Perry. Was there anything different about some of their last days with how President Monson's last days played out? Or was it all kind of the same? Yeah, nothing that I can recall. I don't. I don't think they had such long, drawn out maladies. Um, I, I think when their illnesses took them, it was it was relatively quick. And this is just purely postulating. And perhaps you might have some of the rumors or some of the the things that other people were talking about in the office. But why keep this a secret? Like why why does it matter for the membership not to know? And, and that is something that we speculated on a little bit just behind closed doors in the office you and your colleagues and i think a lot of it just comes down to the members have to know that god's chosen leader is the leader 
right? Because why why would God have a chosen leader and then let someone else do all the work or make the decisions? And and there's kind of a a theological reason, I think, behind that. Um, because otherwise, why doesn't God just take him and let the next prophet fill in? And uh, I don't know how similar or different this was to. I thought it was Benson that that had dementia as well. But I don't know the difference between those situations or how it was handled. But it, it definitely seemed like we're just going to keep on going as if everything is normal. And when he passes on, you know, we still have some continuity because of the same people have been making the decisions for 10 or 20 years anyway, 40 years. I'm always for transparency, but I don't think that the members would take it negatively if they were open about something like this. Yeah. And and I, I think whatever message the church puts out, the members are going to jump on it and they're going to latch to it. Um, we see that all the time. And so if they just say, you know, our, our dear president Monson is not well in all cases. And, you know, here's some of his struggles and we're doing our best to support him and we still value his counsel and his leadership. If there's a message that tells members how to react to it, it works. And and I think they could have crafted a message like that. There were some very talented PR people. So let's keep moving with your story a little bit. We keep jumping back because I think your job is fascinating. And I think there's a lot of cool stuff that we can talk about. Now you've worked for them three, four years. Your wife has left the church. Your colleagues are fine with it. You're still kind of getting along. How do you get to where you are today? Yeah, I think looking back, I think this is always how it was going to end. It's a question of when and how <laughs> rather than if. Um, yeah. But I, I really was like putting everything I had into it and still struggling a little bit with some of the week to week church participation and just feeling like I'm really an outsider here. But I found a ton of value in my work. And like, I really felt like I was doing something to build the kingdom of God. And like, I'm improving lives and I can see it when I go out and travel. Like, here are things the church has done that helped our family in Nigeria. And like, I see it and I'm part of it and I'm building it. And that that felt meaningful and spiritually fulfilling. And then week after week on Sunday, I would just feel so drained and blasé. And like, I don't even enjoy this? What am I doing here? So you had a fulfilling experience at work and unfulfilling on Sunday when you're worshiping. Right. And and for a lot of my colleagues, they would explain it the opposite. They'd say, I love, you know, that feeling when I take the sacrament with my wife and my kids. And when I come to work, I'm seeing the sausage being made and I see all the bureaucracy and the <laughs> politics and it ruins it for me. And And I felt very much the opposite. Well, you mentioned the sausage being made and one of the questions I had, and, and this will bring up this more in detail in, in a later chat that I have with you, but you said that there were some key indicators for those that will most likely leave the church. You're doing these surveys, and, and again, we'll we'll touch on those in, in another chat, but you do these surveys. Did you realize that you fit these key indicators for someone that would eventually leave the church as you're doing these surveys? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was very clear. What's that experience like? It's crazy. Like we had these surveys that would kind of identify what type of member someone was likely to be uh, kind of a, a general indicator of all of their values and attitudes and behaviors and kind of taking all of that together. 
uh, putting them in a cluster or a segment. And, and consistently, when I would take that survey, I would land in the 1% of active members that were kind of independent spiritually. And part of me kind of took pride in that. Like I've always felt a little bit different from the people I've been around at BYU, at work, in my wards. You know, I, I kind of felt a pride in being part of that 1% that was on the outside edge. And, and I used to even tell people, like I watched a documentary on PBS about deer and they were talking about like deer love the edges of things. You know, they're, they're not on the highway. They're not in the woods. They're right in between, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're not active at night or in the day, but at dusk and dawn. And like, I felt like I'm a deer. That's my, that's my true spirit. That's awesome. <laughs> I lived in a place, um, on the coast in the Oregon coast where, you can't hunt, but there's a lot of really big forests. The deer did definitely did not live on the edge there. They were regularly on the school <laughs> right football fields. They're like walking in your yard, walking on the street. You just live around them. If you leave the door open, they're coming in. <laughs> that same survey tool, you know, if we would, uh, when we presented that to church leadership at the headquarters, uh, we would have the church leadership take that survey typing tool and they would all end up in a very, very different category than me. <laughs> Did you have to give your results to the headquarters or was that a personal? No, it was, it was just part of the testing process. Gotcha. You know, go, go through this tool that we've developed and see if it seems right or if there's anything we need to tweak or look at the data more closely and it seemed to work. You said that it was always going to happen, that you were always going to leave. You've re- you did this survey that basically said you're going to leave the church. Did you ever consciously think, yeah, I probably will eventually leave? Um, I don't think I ever opened that door in my mind. That was a door that was safer closed. Yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> Definitely makes sense. I think that's, that's the whole experience with the shelf that a lot of people have. But you just had a, a, a broader view of the inside. As you said, you saw the sausage being made. You, you, you were there observing how the church is being run. And in a lot of ways, it is just like any other business. You have a lot of staff working on a lot of things and priorities change. And some things that are a great idea get vetoed by somebody else and you have no power over it. (laughs) (laughs) On one hand, it's a worldwide church and it needs a branch or an arm of itself doing all of these things in order for it to operate efficiently. There's a lot of administration. On one hand, you know, yes, it's it's weird to see all these things and to see under the hood, but it doesn't on its own mean that the church isn't true. It's just a necessary evil, if you will, that this is how it has to be. And I, and I think there were mixed opinions about how much should church headquarters be doing. You know, if this really is like a home and family type of church and they've got all the priesthood keys they need in their own congregation, why do we need to be writing the manuals and preparing the programs and all of those things? Um, And then kind of on the other end, like if we have the resources to do more and to help people, is that something we should lean into? Um, And do we do we go more involved or less involved? And what does that mean for the line of authority and the priesthood keys and the ability for people to choose their own flavor of the way the church should work for them. Or did you work for the church when you stopped believing or did you terminate your employment and then lose the rest of your faith, if you will, because it seems like you're still nuanced at this point. 
definitely a little bit nuanced, still making it work. So I'm trying to remember the timing of all of this about a year before I stopped working for the church is when my Bishop called me in to his office, just at random, uh, you know, I got the text from the executive secretary. Will you come in? I said, can you tell me why? And he said, no, I can't. And I said, okay, <laughs> I've had those. <laughs> and, and he just said, look, I don't believe that you believe your Bishop is telling you this. Yeah. So my Bishop is saying this and he says, I know that you need your temple recommend to keep your job. And I don't think that you qualify for it anymore. And so in my mind, I'm thinking I am doing literally everything I can to choose to believe. Wow. It was such a fight or flight moment. And with my job on the line, I didn't feel like I could stand up to him or walk out or say, this is really inappropriate. Let's talk when it's time for my recommend renewal or anything like that. I just kind of like, okay, I need to be docile. It's like when you get pulled over by the police while Brown, um, you, yeah. <laughs> do what, you do what that authority figure says because there's a lot at stake. A typical member of the church, you know, I'd say the majority of the listeners, they're not going to have this sort of experience where the bishop is both ecclesiastical leader and gatekeeper for their employment. Right. That's a huge burden, both for him to bear, but then also to kind of brazenly flaunt over your head. Yeah, it, it really felt like a, a hammer held over my head. Like at any moment, I could just do this. And he, and he said to me, as bishop, it is my job to protect the church from people like you. What type of person did he say that you were? And I didn't get clarification on what he meant by people like me, but I can assume. And I think mostly that was because of choices that my wife had made, not things that I had done or said just kind of adding to that complexity of what does it mean to be in a mixed faith marriage working for the church, uh, trying to make it work. Did he revoke your recommend or was that something that happened? No. So he didn't end up taking my recommend or making any kind of drastic decision. No disciplinary action, just kind of a conversation with you. Yeah. And, and it was a very difficult conversation under duress, <laughs> but, uh, Oh, I imagine. But I, I, I tried my best to reassure him, like, I am doing everything I can to stay faithful. I am bringing my kids every week. You know, I'm doing what I can do. And I, I want this to work. I find it meaningful and spiritually enriching. Um, and and it, it, it was a very long conversation. I think it took about an hour, maybe hour and a half. And and I just walked out of there feeling completely emotionally drained. And I don't think I ever quite recovered from that. And so that was a big part of the reason why I ended my employment there before anything could happen. And you, at this time, still going through depression, suicidal ideation, like you're still there. Yeah. I mean, this is six years later. And that definitely brought all of it back. It brought all of it back. I, I went to therapy a lot after that, just trying to regain my footing. Um, but the, the next morning I called our director and I just said, Hey, I don't know what the process is for this kind of thing, but my Bishop is really scaring me <laughs> and I don't want to lose my job. And I don't think I should lose my job. And he just said, listen, employment decisions are up to me, not your Bishop. So even if he takes your recommend, I'm under no obligation to fire you. Oh, really? He said, I will work with you. I will make sure that you're treated fairly. So there's nothing in your contract that says you have to have a recommend after you've started employment. 
Um, you are supposed to, and I still don't know exactly how that policy works, but if you lose your recommend, it's not like you get an automatic flag on your record that says this guy needs to go, you know, please escort him out of the building or anything like that. (laughs) So he said, look, that that's a decision that I have to make if it ever comes to that for now, just keep on doing whatever you're doing. You know, you feel good about where you're at in your life. Keep doing that. But it was a lot of pressure and just not ever knowing, like, is this same bishop going to try this again? Is the next bishop going to try this? And you never know who you're going to get as that bishop roulette. And it's complicated. Bishop roulette is a real issue in the church. So how does, and and I know your wife isn't part of this interview, but she's she's right along with you with all of these things Mm -hmm. you're still bringing the kids to church you're obviously talking to her about all of these issues and the things that are on your mind you know some of this this ecclesiastical abuse like how is she responding to that is she still supporting you or is she telling you you really need to stop working there is she like like hey get out of the church it's not true like how did that interaction go and, and again, if you don't want to talk about that, that's totally fine. <laughs> it depends on the day. Because <laughs> some days she would just say, I really don't understand how you can still want to work there. Like you're miserable on Sunday. Why would you still want to be part of it? And other days she would say, I'm so glad you like your job. I'm so glad you have supportive coworkers. You know, I love that for you. And you know, I hope it doesn't get worse or I hope that it, it doesn't break and kind of just always waiting for that other shoe to drop. Like it's great for now, but what if, um, but she never said like, I really want you to leave the church or I want you to quit your job. Um, so she was supporting you in, in your decisions. Yeah. And, and I was trying to be very sensitive to what she's experiencing as a result of my employment choices as well. Just knowing that if something does happen and I lose my job, it's not just me that suffers. It's all of us. Um, And it's not fair to put ourselves in a position where that's likely to happen. Do you start looking for other employment or or how did that like what what happened next after after this interaction with the bishop? Yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. I started looking around, seeing what other options are there you know, in the Valley, so we don't have to move or <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and, and then I found a secure employment kind of, you know, said goodbye to all of the friends that I would consider family. And like, it, it was a difficult departure. I mean, mental health has kind of been a theme that we're talking about a little bit. Did you notice any changes in your mental health when you took new employment or did it stay about the same? Yes. I think the biggest thing that was a benefit to my mental health was that I finally felt like I was free to make certain choices that I just could not have done otherwise. What sort of choices? Even just like, it's okay for me to take one Sunday off church and take my family to Lagoon. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to lose my job over it. I personally don't feel like I'm going to go to hell over it. <laughs> but that was something that I had never really allowed myself to do just in case. Well, a typical member never has that sort of thought cross their mind unless they're like really devout, really orthodox. A typical member, they're going to go on vacation. They're going to miss, you know, every summer they'll miss like a handful of Sundays or they'll, you know, it just, we had a, we, there's a running joke in my family that one of my, <laughs> what, there was one week where one of my siblings didn't go to church. And the kids were like, hey, why aren't we going to church this week? 
And the parents said, oh, it's just not our turn to go to church this Sunday. And that's kind of the running joke. <laughs> it's not our turn. And so I think it's it's pretty common for members to just, you know, if they're, if they're not there, you know, maybe their things are running slow, the kids are crazy, they're going on vacation. For whatever reason, they're not going to go. But being employed by the church, there's an added obligation of attendance every week, regardless of circumstances. Yeah, because you kind of have to. But yeah, just the way that we had done religiosity within our own family. During my first year working for the church, I had appendicitis on a Sunday morning. I was in a lot of pain and my wife dropped me off at the hospital and and I went into surgery and she went to church with the kids and had her phone off. And, you know, you don't have your phone on during the sacrament. And so I went into surgery and she didn't know. (laughs) That's crazy. Until she got the messages when she turned the phone back on. That's, That's how we did church. And those are the kinds of decisions that we made. Uh, and so after church employment ended, you know, all of those constraints were off and, and she wasn't pushing us to go. And I didn't feel like I had to necessarily unless I wanted to. Yeah, Even if you're trying to pursue an active believing life, it's just almost like a notch down in the requirements and you can live more comfortably. Yeah. It was lower stakes. Not with less orthodoxy, but just more comfortably. Yeah. And it it doesn't have to change your belief system. I I feel like I was able to explore my own spirituality in a way that I hadn't had opportunities to really do for a long time. And what did that look like exploring your own spirituality? Just like if I don't want to study the scriptures, but I want to study something that is spiritually uplifting, what else is on the table? You know, maybe I could read books by a Buddhist monk or by a Catholic father. And and there's just so much more that I felt like I can do this my way and still be faithful, still be a loving, good person, a good parent, a good neighbor, all of the things that I was already anyway, or wanted to be or hoped to be. (laughs) That sounds very similar to my, my spiritual shift as an adult was finding spirituality outside of the church was one of the first steps that I took before leaving. And and just feeling like I don't have to play along with every initiative that comes out of church headquarters. I don't have to share the light the world hashtag every single (laughs) time there's an event. And you know, this, this is now my religion. This is my relationship with God and no Bishop at this point can ever hold that over me. So we're a couple of years removed. You said that this was 2019. Now we've had COVID. We've had, you know, all sorts of things happen. You know, so we're three years removed from your employment with the church. Are you still active? Are you still believing? Are you still attending? Like, what does your relationship with the church look like now? Yeah. So at this point, yeah, I guess uh, end of 2019, I'm still active, still going to church every week. I had a calling with primary felt like even if I'm not teaching out of the manual, I'm a good influence for these kids. I can show them that there's love and kindness in the world and they can be good people. And so, so I'm doing that with kind of my whole heart, um, all the way up until COVID really. Okay. Um, and, and I think gradually I had been believing in the theology and the one true church narrative less and less, uh, throughout that next year. But really, by the time COVID started, I had only been going because I had an obligation. I committed to be there for these kids, and so I'm going to show up. Um, And so then when COVID happened, it was finally like, okay, I I didn't miss it. (laughs) I don't miss going to church. And 
Uh, and from there it was pretty quickly just, you know, I'm, I think I'm done. You know, I think I've found my own inner peace. I think I've found the way that I want to live my life and the church doesn't have to be a part of it and just kind of letting it drift away. Uh, not with any animosity or like I'm not severing ties, but uh, we're in different places. It's, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> why reach out? Why reach out to a podcast or why, why speak out on something like this? And not that I don't sense from you any malicious motive. Um, I don't sense that you're trying to, to tear the church down with anything that you're trying to do. I think from the conversations we've had, and, and granted, they've been brief up until today, I just get the idea that you just have so much on your chest that you want to say, and you don't know where to put that energy. I think there are a lot of people, even with different circumstances and contexts, that can relate to the kinds of emotions or the kinds of fear of what if I lose something that matters to me. You know, maybe for me it was a job, and for other people it's their family relationships or childhood friends or who knows what. And I, I think it's important also to show there are families in and around and near the church who have a lot going on that people don't see. You know, these are very private kinds of things that, you know, if, if I don't talk about it, nobody knows what my bishop is saying to me that's hurtful. And, and nobody knows the kinds of conversations that go on between a husband and wife that are in different places spiritually or that have different objectives or different things that they want out of life. I can relate with that as my wife is still active and believing granted nuanced, but our conversations spiritually are, are fascinating because we come to the table with dramatically different ideas. Yeah. And, and I think that going through a faith crisis or going through a mixed faith marriage can be, scary and hard and painful and damaging and traumatic and also beautiful and positive. <laughs> and you learn to communicate in different ways and you, you start to understand each other in ways that maybe you didn't before. And it kind of the same thing that I said earlier, but just because you share the same religion with someone doesn't mean you share the same values. Even in a marriage, I think you can start to assume, you know, we both, you know, our LDS met at BYU, uh, you know, obviously we have the same values and, and it's easy to keep that assumption even after you're married, if you don't explicitly talk about it and this faith crisis or these big transition moments can help bring that conversation to the surface and make you have it. This has been an awesome chat, but we have so much more that we need to talk about for the listeners out there. Brian sent me this, I, I can't remember how many pages, two or three pages long bullet points of a ton of different things that he both researched on, glimpses behind the curtain on some of the things that the church was considering doing, some of the changes, an interesting window into their reaction to um, receiving this information. Sometimes when they did implement changes, sometimes when they didn't. Definitely bring Brian back on because we have so much more to talk about. But I think it was important today to get kind of a higher level um, understanding of what it was like working there and get a good, good idea of who Brian is as a person. My favorite thing that we've talked about is the fact that those of us on the other side, out, outside of the church, when we look at the church headquarters, when we look at those working in the church, we assume a lot of things about their orthodoxy, about their personal lives, and about how who they are as a person without really knowing who they are. But here we have 
from what Brian has said today, we have someone who was working with the church, presenting information to the prophets and to the apostles and to the the 70. But he himself was going through a lot of these same faith crisis and faith transition feelings and events in his life that many of us have gone through. So when we look at humans, we always need to remember that they're humans going through things. No person is exactly who you think they are. And I I think if we can offer kindness to someone who um, is different than us, we might understand so much better where they're coming from. And and that was my favorite aspect of some of the the conversation that we had in the background was, was recognizing that you could work for church headquarters and not be orthodox or have have a lot of these questions and, and be going through things, but still be part of the machine. Yeah, it's a complicated machine and it's good and bad. It reminds me, and again, I'm going to bring it back to 1984, Winston, the main character. He's part of this machine. He's going through the emotions of doing all these things that he was familiar with, but the whole time he's questioning every aspect of what he's doing. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the idea that I get from some of our conversations. Yeah, I think that fits. Thank you so much for coming on today. I think this was a blast. We will have you on again. So we'll release next week. We'll have a chat where we'll go over these details and some of the specific things that that Brian worked on and has firsthand knowledge of. It's going to be an awesome chat. It's going to be so much that we're going to cover. So thank you, Brian, for coming on the show. This was so much fun to talk to you. Oh, this is a blast. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one. Well, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for sticking around to listen to the episode. This was a fascinating chat and a, an interesting glimpse behind the curtain to see what goes on in the church headquarters, uh, at least within this part of the correlation department. Brian was an excellent guest, and I'm excited to bring him back on and chat more in depth about some of the surveys that he Um, had a direct hand in and some of the initiatives that he was involved with. So look for that one next week. And as always, I hope that you have an excellent day.